0: Uh good afternoon, everyone. It's afternoon for me now anyway, but it's not afternoon for our special guest on the Beyond Autism uh, podcast series. We're lucky enough to have with us today uh Dr. Merrill Winston. Um he is uh, Director of Programme Development at PCMA, which I'll let him explain in just a second. Welcome, Meryl.
1: Ah, uh, thank you very much. Um yeah, how's things there? Good. Yeah, very good. Very good. Well, it,
0: I mean, I'd, I'd say it's hot today for us, but I, I guess our pu- poultry um, 27 degrees, which I don't even know how to convert that into American, is um, probably nothing compared to what you're, you've got right now.
1: Yeah, for people overseas, I'm not good at math, so I just go by articles of clothing they wear when they step outside, and then I just figure it out. <laughs> okay. Are you wearing shorts? shorts? Oh, God, no. Say, so, OK, I got it.
0: <laughs> yeah, my my adaptive behavior is fine. Thank you. Okay. uh um, it's 27 degrees, but it might even just be your winter. Anyway, Miro, I, I missold you or miss, undersold you massively
1: with the introduction. Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, okay. Um, well, I am, like you said, I'm the director of program development for PCMA. Um, we do, uh, it's Professional Crisis Management Association and we train instructors in our system of crisis intervention um, for use in schools and residential facilities and private homes and things like that. And I've been doing that since uh, about 2002 and um, wow. prior, prior to that um, from about nine, 1993 to about 2000, about nine years almost. Um, I was the uh, senior behavior analyst at a large um, developmental services institution in South Florida. Um, one of the four that used to be in Florida, most of them have closed. I think there's only one that's there's only there's two that are still open. Um, there are originally five, but anyway, I was at I was at that one for nine years. So I was working with adults with special needs and severe behavior problems. Um, and uh, went to school at Auburn University, studied with Jim Johnston. Prior to that, I uh, went to school at the University of Florida and I worked under Jim Johnston uh, for a little while in his lab. And uh, oh, what, wow. was, what was interesting is he went, he decided to accept a position at Auburn. And right after he did, I got accepted at Auburn because it was one of the programs I applied to. Okay. So I used to tell people he followed me there, but uh, nobody actually followed <laughs> anybody. But, but uh, he just happened to be there. So okay. Oh, well, wow. you,
0: could, you could definitely you could definitely play that story. That's fine. <laughs> but uh... so the um so just going back to the current work now the pcma uh work uh directorship and so on it, that's kind of what got us talking originally i think i mean obviously for those of you that well they, you wouldn't know Marilyn and i met uh by luck actually uh over in paris at the international conference and then uh as some time passed and a mutual friend introduces to your colleague neil mm-hmm he's is co-director. I'm not sure his title. He's the executive director. Yes, executive director. Mm-hmm. And then we spent some time in um, Cleveland, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, I think. Training. I, I think. think that's where it was. Yeah. 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 All run. They all, all blend together now. I can't remember. <laughs> but that, sure. but I know it was but. in the States. I know it was in
0: the yeah, States. Okay. <laughs> yeah, OK. Yeah, me was too. Was I sorry. definitely flew to America. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the rest is history, as they say. Um Incidentally, they have the best mac and cheese in the US in, in Cleveland in a small industrial park near where we stayed, I seem to remember. Okay. In any case, that aside, um, over time, we, you know, have, have discussed the kind of, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a principle necessarily, but certainly uh, maybe a strategy or a method we've, we've discussed prompting a lot. And the reason... Why it resonates so much with Beyond Autism is that they've, um, over the last two or three years, have been really uh, focused on increasing independence. Yes. And obviously, prompting in of itself is it is is it's everywhere. I mean, you can't just simply look it up in the uh-huh. literature because it applies to almost everything as part of an antecedent strategy for um, developing new skills and so on. Um, you're obviously more likely to look up something you want to teach when you're referring to the literature probably and have that inspire you and you would see prompting almost always in skill building i would say Mm -hmm. um and so it's all dotted throughout the task list you can kind of pick it up for yourself um if you're reading it for those of you out there uh, who are concerned with the ceu aspect obviously it's in areas teaching procedures direct instructions fundamental events and uh, fundamental elements of behavior change i mean it's everywhere obviously Mm -hmm. Um, So to kick us off, I just wanted to draw everyone's attention to, I guess, you know, let's go to seminal text. Let's go to the base text of where everybody starts with study, and that that tends to be Cooper. And obviously, in the UK, we've only just managed to get hold of the the third edition. So, you know, it's brand new for us. Um, In any case, antecedent variable stimulus control, chapter 17, we start talking about uh, prompting. And there's a slight discrepancy between the 2007-2020 definition, which is fine. Um, In 2007, it talks about uh, a method to develop stimulus control and their supplementary antecedent stimuli used to occasion a correct response in the presence of a discriminative stimulus that will eventually control the behavior. And then the slight variation in 2020, uh, I'll just read it here because you can figure it for yourself. So prompts are supplementary antecedent stimuli used to occasion the correct response in the presence of a natural SD that will eventually control the behavior. A, uh, applied behaviour analysts give response and stimulus prompts before or during the performance of the behaviour. And then it talks about response prompts operating directly on the response to cure a correct response. And there are three major forms of verbal modelling and physical guidance and then stimulus prompts. And everybody kind of understands what that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I thought was really interesting about the slight change or slight difference, I suppose, is, is the reference to the natural SD in 2020. I like when we were discussing it the other day, yeah, there was, a, there was a point we made around prompting and its effectiveness and why or maybe why not prompting can be faded. So I guess our question to start us off really is in an arena where validity in terms of the evidence base is lauded, um, are practitioners taught or prompted to be good prompters? And what more needs to be done to establish prompting is a necessary step that must be faded to independence. So there you go. Discuss.
1: So uh, I like that about when the naturally current stimuli don't control behavior. And we didn't think of it yesterday, but I just thought of this now. And one issue, I mean, there's a lot we'll get to, but one issue when people can't seem to get away from their supplementary stimuli, like, mm. um, okay, pick pick up the towel. Um, where they should have known to pick up the towel. Um, Part of it has to do with um, an analysis of their ability to be controlled by the naturally occurring stimuli. So one one issue is in any given task or endeavor you're teaching somebody to do, catch the bus or whatever, how complex are the naturally occurring stimuli that we rely on to catch Mm. the bus? And – if they're very complex, you're probably never going to get rid of your prompt because no. you haven't done an analysis of what are the skills necessary for this person to be effectively controlled by the naturally occurring stimuli. Now, for simple situations like opening a door, if they can perceive the door and see that it's closed and they have a history of not walking into closed doors, that's, that's they should be successful with that. But what if… What if the naturally occurring stimuli like, hey, Andy, make sure and take your raincoat if it if, if it looks like rain? Well, if it looks like rain is a pretty complex repertoire, OK, you have to make it. It's a judgment call. What do you look at? Do you look at the weather channel? Do you look at the clouds? Do you smell the air? What do you what do you do? You look for people carrying umbrellas. What do you do? So the point is. You'd probably be prompted forever if you didn't have a repertoire or be able to label characteristics of rain coming soon. You know? That's right. It just doesn't... And, and actually, it's interesting you brought that
0: that up, actually. I hadn't thought about it like that way, because there's so much about what you and I might have as prompts in our life. That, that the, are
1: occur- the so-called naturally occurring prompts.
0: Yeah, right, which are effective because... Of our mostly controlled aspects of language, right?
1: Yeah, and because of our vast history, possibly depending on this context.
0: Yeah. So if so, you think, you know, I, if I need to know if it's going to rain or not, I check an app on my phone. Yeah. Which you know,
1: and in you a might self, the sky. Sky. and you might ask a friend, and you know, you might check the television, and you might look at the paper, and a variety of other things, you know, yeah. um, that yet you would know to do. Yeah. Um. And you'd also have to discriminate, you know, coat raincoats from cold weather coats from evening jackets and stuff like that. You'd have to have that in your repertoire, too. So this is interesting because you see that in adaptive behavior assessment from a
0: standardized point of view. Like, can people select the right clothing for the right weather?
1: Right. So those are a bunch of conditional discriminations. So, the you know, one issue is if if you are wanting the naturally I'm not using it in quotes because it's not real. But I'm just saying naturally occurring stimuli could be extremely simple that anyone, a pigeon, could be controlled by all the way up to something that you need a vast education to be able to be controlled by successfully and come under the control of multiple conditional discriminations that are happening at the same time. So, Mm. you know, that's that's what makes things difficult. And so I I think if there's not an analysis of that. I don't think you need to do it ahead of time necessarily, but if people are having problems fading their prompts and
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, we look into motivational issues, which we talked about that a little bit, which is uh, and we can talk about that when you want. But from, that's from the client's perspective, from the student's perspective, the child's perspective. What's in it for me? And yeah. so if, if we don't address the what's in it for me, that's a big hitch on um, prompt dependence. Right, because because the concepts or the or the um, principle of
0: prompting or methodology of prompting, it's kind of I mean you can read it in a few sentences. You can learn the difference between response and stimulus prompts and and most to least and least the most and all the other bits and pieces. But you know much past that, you have to get really quite sophisticated, really quite quickly. And of course, when you're teaching practitioners, you know the three, four, five-term contingency, whichever whichever peg you hang your hat on, on that one, um, the prompt gets dropped in at the right point and you, you occasion the behavior and, and so forth, you can reinforce and strengthen. But that's fine. Conceptually, everyone gets that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But how much would you say a prompt dependency then, just to elaborate on your last point, is based on the fact that there's this consistent um, conflict, I suppose, or polemic issues, I might call it, between expectations of children at age and stage. Yes. Or, And then, i.e., national curricula. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, of,
1: and then adaptive behavior and skills that are, requ- that are required to operate and live in the day. Yeah, I, I think it means everything. And, you know, a child's ability to understand. You, let me put it to you this way. I could teach you, if I knew how to do it, I could teach you how to write Chinese characters, okay? Yeah. Even if you have no idea what you're gonna do with it, how it's useful, or why I'm wanting you to do it. If I just said, "Shut up, Andy, and do it, I'll pay you a million dollars if you learn how to write these five Chinese characters. i I know I can teach you to do it. There'll be enough motivation. you'll do it, even though you don't understand why you're doing it, and even though you find no utility in it, right? But for a lot of the children we're working with, you know, as an example, if they're nonverbal and we're teaching them a more traditional academic skill, my favorite one is writing your own name, they do not care about being independent, which is one of the points I wanted to make. If, if you're a typically developing kiddo and you want to learn how to ride a bike and you can only ride it with training wheels, you can only ride it with dad hanging onto the bike, you do want to be independent. You very much want to be independent. It is high on your list to ride the bike by yourself. Mm. My question is for any student we're working with, is it like a bike? Is it like riding their bike by themselves? Is that is that how motivated they are to be independent? You know, and so in many cases, I would argue they're not motivated to be independent at all. and They don't even know what they're doing. So Mm. it doesn't mean they can't learn. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't be teaching them because shouldn't is a judgment right mm. what it may mean is you may never get away from your prompts and here's one of the reasons why i don't care about doing it myself okay my dad taught me to mow the lawn by myself with no prompting that made him incredibly happy it made me miserable i was independent in mowing the lawn it increased the quality of my life zero it increased the quality of my father's life dramatically because he didn't have to mow the lawn now okay mm. So here's my point. Was I – did I become independent in lawnmowing? Yeah. Is it something that I wished to do? No. But I could learn quickly, and it, and it wasn't difficult for me to learn. But what if you learn a bit more slowly? And what if you really aren't interested in lawnmowers? So this is kind of – you. you will see in those kinds of situations, you'll see a lot more prompt dependence because <laughs> – I, I don't care if I do it myself. Uh, another reason is differential reinforcement, which we can circle back to if you want. That's, that's, that's a true. huge problem. And, and it's is interesting, isn't it? Because that's the type of,
0: you know, you go back to kind of uh, maybe a outwardly facing kind of intro to ABA type training. And people talk about, you know, is a behavior being reinforced or not? And they might use the lawnmower followed by, a you know, some pocket money or some allowance for doing it. And it doesn't increase. And and and, and interestingly, uh, maybe when we're working with children that are, you need to build MOs. You need to condition motivating operations. You need to uh, pair reinforcers and all the rest of it. It's not a surprise, really, that you end that people obviously would start with the man training just because you get them in that space of having their own needs met much yeah, faster.
1: Yeah. And if you think about it, like any task, like independence. It, you have to put your my wife and I were just talking about this. She's a behavior analyst, my wife Lorraine, and she's also a, a licensed mental health counselor. And um she just um uh we were just talking about um um uh it I I think it'll probably come back to me. It had but it had to do it it had to do coming back to in, independence. Is this yeah. is this something that 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 the person wants? It doesn't mean they can't be you know, kind of encouraged to look forward to that and be happy about being independent. We do that with our own kids. Look at you. You're a big boy. You did it all by yourself. And the reason we do that, we like them um, for their sake and our sake, for their sake and our sake. We'd like our young children to be independent. It frees up our time. And and parents of children with special needs are no different. They would like their children to be independent for some of the same reasons we want our children to be independent. It frees up time for us, and it also prepares them for the future. So it's good for both. You know, however, sometimes children end up getting taught things that are only good for us. That is, they make beautiful sense to us. They make us very happy. But to the child, they have no idea what they're doing. It. And just to give parents who might be listening an example, again, I'm going to come back to name writing. Is learning how to write your name a bad thing? No, it's a wonderful thing. Every child should learn how to do it if they can. But there's a caveat. What are the things can you do? So, um, you know, could you, uh, if a child's nonverbal, can you teach them how to write their name? Yeah, I've seen people do it. It can be done. It's quite difficult. It can be done. However, from the child's point of view, because they are nonverbal, they don't have any intrinsic motivation to write their name unless they just love using pencils and seeing lines be made. And if you've ever watched children learning how to write, it ain't coloring, it's not fun. It's actually quite difficult. It's arduous. You have to pay attention. You have to look at the page. You have to hold an item. You have to have good hand-eye coordination. It's a very difficult task even for children who are much higher functioning and quite verbal, right? But I've seen mm-hmm. people it you know, to children who barely even have a word. So the point is is that the child writing their name is important to somebody because somebody's somebody's teaching them. I know who it's not important to. It's not important to the kid that is biting the therapist trying to get them to hold the pencil. Mm. I know the child is not interested in learning how to write their name. I don't even have to, like, look at it for more than 30 seconds. And I know that someone somewhere is interested in this child writing their name. It could be the core standards or the curriculum that's used by everyone. It could be the parents at an IEP meeting that they want this. Could be something that they just a lot of the things we teach children, it's well, we teach it to other kids their age. It's it's not based on readiness for it or the skill set or the motivation to learn or wanting to be independent. A lot of times it's based on chronological age. Well, how old is he? Well, he's seven, and all the other seven-year-olds are working on this. We should try to have him work on that, which sounds good. I mean, out of the mm. gate, but may have other problems. So, you know, this. Uh, so, so like back to the name writing, you'd be prompted to do that forever. Uh, I mean, and even if you could write it independently, even if by some miracle you taught someone who's nonverbal and you you could, but to perfectly write their name, because they're nonverbal, they're probably not going to be independent. Mm, what are they going to do with the name writing skill? So, you know, even that, where's it going? But I mean, that's a different discussion. But my, my point is, though, about from the child's point of view, why do I want to do this? Why should I be excited about this? And if they don't know, you've got to have some giant reinforcement to overcome, to overcome their lack of intrinsic motivation. Well, And what's super interesting
0: for me is I in, in a previous role in a different setting, we used to spend a lot of time uh, – I, I had a lot more oversight of the intake assessment data and the baseline assessments. And we would look a lot at adaptive behaviour as well as kind of the you know the verbal offerings sort of uh, vb map generally Um, depending on the learner we would be looking at possibly EFL and so on but what we would find in the adaptive in the Vineland assessment almost exclusively almost uh, repetitively is those children that had contact with behaviour analysis this is not a good story by the way those (coughs) people that had contact with (laughs) behaviour analysis were always good at writing relative to the rest of their skills. And it makes me wonder when I would see this time and time again, come through the adaptive behaviour scaling was like, it must be something about the kind of contingency mapping of who is it important to. And then it's quite I mean, you can you can prompt and prompt fade in a multiple different ways to teach right, how how to, um, how to write your name. And so you can see a progression of skill building, you can see kind of progressively more successful trials. But interestingly, lots of those children, I would say, you know, ballpark, 80, 85 percent of those kids, we had to spend a lot of time fading primary reinforcers for, which I think Um, speaks to your
1: point. You know, uh, it's interesting. I just had a thought when you said that. But one thing about writing that's different than reading, writing leaves proof of what they did. Yeah. reading doesn't exactly. and, and the only proof of reading is a comprehension exam which often is multiple choice and it's heavily prompted by staff and so what they do is you, you can't show like they it's hard to show they read unless they're doing text to speech and showing comprehension like reading you a story and doing the different voices and animating your face at the right time um But, you know, the writing has a product. Reading, most of the kids that they say can read really well, as an example, right? Um, I almost never see any of them read aloud from a text they've never seen. And so that is, you really don't read well, but, you know, writing at least has a product. And you can point to it. Look, he can write. Mm. And I know he can write because I see it on paper. Can he read? I'm pretty sure he can read. He looks at the book. <laughs> so, you know, maybe that's something people hang their hat on more. I don't know. Yeah. It's very hard to know, but yes. let, let's go, let's go
0: back to this whole, this sort of central idea then around. Sure. Um, Cause I think in society, there's always going to be, and we, we discuss things, we use phrase like vanity skills to a certain extent. The other day when we were just pre-discussing this conversation, and we, yeah. I, I suppose really what that might mean is non-functional skills for the learner. But then, Every child has a right to education, right? So you do have to find a balance between, uh, let's say, writing your name or reading and, and maths and just general navigation of your day and that type of thing. You know, we need to endeavour to teach that, but it, I guess, is the behaviour analyst challenge then, isn't it, to start thinking about how much of this child's program or curriculum is going to maintain itself, and what I mean by that is if you have been taught a skill does it then appear in the next skills
1: is it a cost is it a cost yeah. that it can be built upon perhaps uh yeah I, I think that's i think that's a really um i think it's an important issue i was thinking something else when you were uh, speaking about that um uh can you go pedal back a little bit uh, about yeah, what? i was
0: just i was just um trying
1: to strike that balance between kind of vanity skills so, um, so let's let's put it in this category. I like to put it in. I used to do a training for our staff, and here's why. Uh, at the institution, what we had was they weren't even like vanity skills, like things that are nice, like say please and thank you, and you know stuff like that, um, and make your bed. But they were stuff like that. So like it wasn't really a vanity skill, but like an everyday skill. But here's the deal: is it a good skill to teach? As a question, can only be answered by looking at the context of skills the person has. And also how difficult it is for them to learn quickly and retain things they learn. So if you're working with someone who learns quickly and retains things well, if you taught something that wasn't super valuable to them, no big deal. Just go to the next thing and they learn it. What if they learn with great difficulty and every new skill you teach them is a bit of a struggle um, and they are a bit lower functioning Then my general rule is any skill you pick you fight over it. You don't just pick it because it's in a curriculum and you don't just pick it because it's something they can't do. You want to get the biggest, as we say in America, bang for the buck, okay? You want to get the biggest bang for the buck, which means if someone has a highly impoverished repertoire, they can't do that much for themselves. They have no language. They have no self-care, daily living skills. On the lower end of the spectrum of repertoire of skills. Um, For somebody like that, when you first start teaching them, if you go in heavy with things that make sense to the grown-ups, you're going to create a person who wants nothing to do with learning because that's what we had at the institution. And what we had was people learning to do things all day. They had zero interest in bed making. None of our clients were interested in making their bed or brushing their teeth. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be taught. Toothbrushing is important, but here's an issue. None of them had the fine motor to do a proper job. And we did a consult with a dentist and the dentist said for you to do a proper job of brushing your teeth so that they're actually clean. Right. You have to have the fine motor skills that you would need to have to write. All right. It's not just jamming the brush in there. You have to tilt it and do this and do our clients were very low functioning with very poor hand eye coordination. In all probability, they would never learn to independently brush their teeth, but staff were still prompting and doing. It was the wrong thing to teach because it just frustrated them. They would never learn it. And the right thing to teach would be hold your mouth open, comply with staff, let them right. open, You know, because that way you can learn to do something that will help us take care of you. You can participate by turning your head and holding it there and making your mouth big And if you can learn to do that, we can do the job we need to do because you'll never do as good a job, never a proper job, not these individuals. So my point was they were being taught all these things that were great things to learn. But from their point of view, they don't care about it. You know, just think about, you know, the average five-year-old, average five-year-old is not concerned about bad breath and tooth decay. Parents have to nag them to brush their teeth. They're not begging mommy and daddy to brush their teeth. They don't care. It doesn't matter to them. They don't worry about root canals. Well, isn't it interesting that how that that really resonates with me? Because it, it's
0: one of those um, <clears throat> I speak a lot to people, just generally, whether that's through kind of supervision models or just uh, practice advice or what have you. Is is around this idea of what lens are you looking at to understand skill building here for this for this person, like as, as a person centered approach? Yeah. Because you know. Are you you so kind of biased towards the autism that you're thinking everything they do has something to do with having autism or being autistic? Or are you looking at them at, do you remember to remember that they're also a child and that there's an aspect of development here? Or do you remember to remember that this is an adult who will probably intrinsically now be, you know, kind of a, a conditioned, unconditioned MO
1: to have levels of independence? It's a classic uh, rule following, rule following versus contingency shaped conund, not a conundrum, but a problem. Um, And it's the the rule following is you have autism, so we do this, and you have this behavior, so we do this, and and because that's what the rules say to do, right? But the contingency shaped part is, is wait a second, let's look at the child, right? What makes sense to the child? What excites the child? Is would this child be excited? about doing this independently? Would it make it easier? So, you know, just thinking about like that aspect. And if the answer is no, I I don't think he'd be excited by this at all. And, you know, the the whole idea was if you um, I was I forgot to finish, but if you went in heavy handed with everything important to us, but not important to the child, you kind of turned off by teaching is what they'll be, because every time I go to teach, it's going to mean this doesn't make any sense to you. However, if I started heavy-handed with everything that makes sense to you, man training, that's why a lot of people start with that, right? You're, wait a second. You're going to teach me how to magically produce a cookie just by moving my fingers or my hands or by moving my mouth? This is awesome, right? Mm. It makes immediate sense to the person. It is immediately significant to them, right? That's why man training is so wonderful, right? That's why you don't start with labeling. Show me green, because they don't they don't care about green. Well, not they, anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. So, but if you did start with teaching, even though you know there's other more important things to teach. Yeah. The most important things to teach early is that teaching you is fun. It's nice, and I'm not going to waste your time. And you're gonna see how awesome it is to learn these things. Then you start sneaking in things that make less sense to the child and more sense to the adult. We know what's best for you. You don't know yet, but you're gonna thank us when you learn this. So, the more of those things you have, trust me, you'll thank us when you learn this. You can start sneaking those in once they realize, hey, I like this teaching. This is, I, I learned cool things. Then you sneak in some things that aren't so cool. But if you start yeah. with everything that's not cool, Best of luck to you. <laughs> well, this is it. So, you know, we,
0: we, you know, as behavior analysts, behavior analysts are trained to recognize, I guess, the power of the contingency shape behavior, the, like the power of reinforcement, the power of positive reinforcement most often, but then quite quickly you get to negative reinforcement and you understand how powerful that is too. Um, and then once you then, and at the same time, you also know about prompting. So you need to be really careful, I think, and that, this is why it's such, so great that we have such an ethically-bound field is that you have to be so careful that you don't end up teaching a whole load of islands of skills just by virtue of a primary reinforcer, for example, um, over time, because it's such a drama to then fade it away. Um, and those prompt-dependent kids, I, you know, to, but sometimes I think it becomes, it, there's, there's another layer to this, is, it, is how aware you are of prompting because I've, you know, I've worked with some children who are angels, like really sweet kids, nonverbal for the most part, although with some burgeoning language, generally um, spoken, there's been some AAC uh, candidates as well, who won't take that first step down a corridor unless there's a, hey, come on, let's go. And it's almost like they've been conditioned to an additional SD.
1: Our adult clients, when many of them called to the dinner table, At the home, they would walk to the table and stand there, not eat or sit down until someone told them to sit down. Some person, individual. Uh, Another, but another way people don't don't realize, when we talk to people, we don't realize we're doing it, uh, but we use hand and eye gestures and head movements all the time. Even though the people we're talking to know full and well what we just said. That's like when we say, um, I would like uh, two coffees, please. So when um, they know what two means, but we feel compelled to say it or call me, right? So when oftentimes when, when people are working, especially with a nonverbal child who they claim has a very good receptive repertoire, which I'm always suspicious of, it doesn't mean that the kid doesn't understand a lot. Sometimes they understand more than we think. But people will also overrate their ability to understand. And one of the reasons why is the child has learned to pick up on very subtle head movements, eye gazes. So when you say what staff do, I say, can you give them a two step command? And they go this. Yeah. Go get me the pillow from the sofa and bring it over to me. Well, they looked at the pillow. They looked at the sofa. They pointed directly at the pillow and then they did this. They didn't realize they're doing any of it. And then I said, now, Give them another instruction, but put all your hands – put your hands in your pockets. Don't look at the thing you're talking about. Talk about something behind you. All right, and they said, Johnny, go get me the towel on the kitchen counter. Johnny didn't move. Johnny has no idea what she just said, right? She is convinced. Johnny knows what a couch is and what a a cushion is and bring it to me. No, he doesn't. In fact, some people get so prompt-dependent – you can see my fingers – one therapist it was a choice this one or that one the kid was so prompt dependent she's trying to fade her prompts she barely moved this finger like barely that much you can barely see it he would still he got he got so good he could see tiny tiny finger movements and all he got good at was watching finger movements he didn't get good at figuring out which was the cat and which was the dog right <laughs> he got really good at, at, at reading tiny tiny subtle prompts yeah
0: and we're such' we're such just gesticular people i guess like across uh i mean nobody ever really speaks with their 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 body totally static um and and I guess that's fine too but it's it, it's the behavior analyst's role I, I think to to be able to tackle what they see and then therefore be able to then find solutions based on data and kind of oh, you know what it means to be a behavior analyst obviously my point being is that you, you, I think you become an expert tactor and somebody who can then make suggestions based on what they see and can suggest meaning behind actions and so forth. So it's OK to know that prompting is going on. Or it's OK that prompting is happening, but you need to know that it's happening, as opposed to saying, just to kind of illustrate your point, is that they that person can do that with prompts.
1: Oh, yeah. Let's let's talk about prompting. You want to talk about that? Yeah, let's yeah. um, now, it, it usually has to do with um, um, demonstrating that they're not completely independent, but that they're almost there. Um say he can. Um, let me give you an example. I was asking about a student's um, reading comprehension, and they said that she can read on a she's actually in 11th grade. And they said she could read on a fourth grade level. I said, well, How do you know she reads on the fourth grade level? And they were saying, well, we gave her a comprehension exam. It's multiple choice. I go, does she does she score high by herself? And said they said she can she can answer the questions with prompting. And and what I said just kind of like flippantly is, oh, so she can't answer them. And and they kind of like they kind of like looked a little crestfallen and they kind of go, not really. And I go, "Okay, so maybe she doesn't read on the fourth grade level. Mm -hmm. Uh, I go, could she read me? a fourth grade storybook and, and, and uh, no, I'm sorry. And could she read a fourth grade storybook? And then could she tell the story to me, give me a synopsis? And they go, no, I go, she can't read on a fourth grade level, you know? And so the, the, the issue is that saying you can do something with prompting. It, there's another way to say that you can't do it. Right. Um, it, It's a dangerous statement unless you're, Very specific about the prompt, how it's given, what they do and don't know. So let me give you an example. I um, probably – I I definitely could. Um, I I can um, take off and land a 747 with prompting. I am also capable of disarming a nuclear warhead with prompting. In other words, I can't fly a 747 or disarm uh, a nuclear warhead. I can't do it, right? Um I would have to be heavily prompted, right? But to say Merrill can do Merrill can dismantle a bomb with prompting, the bomb squad's not calling me to figure out whether it's the green or the blue wire, right? So here's the the idea it's, we don't want to say people can do things they really can't do. If they can do pieces, you say what pieces they can do, right? But here's what I find. Most of the time, whenever they're doing it with prompting, they're usually pretty far away from being able to do it independently. In most of the cases where I hear people say they can do it with prompting. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it, one one other thing is, Is it a skill that it's okay to do with prompting? Like, is it still a good skill to have? Is it still functional? Like, well, they can do it with prompting, but they do 80% of it on their own. Well, that's pretty Right, exactly. But you have to be be specific, though. Like, what are they prompting?
0: Do you have to prompt that? And that's so so important when you think about, you know, the the cohort that we tend to work with from – well, I say we we tend to work with. That's, that's a massive generalisation, but I suppose the guys that are more severely affected, the ones that struggle with communication in in the kind of more severe sense, like they're not they don't find it hard to communicate. Like maybe I do when I'm being asked what I did for the day after the day at work. It's not that. It's more you know they they need additional devices and they need you know you, you understand the picture. Yeah, is that. That that tends to be quite a transient cohort in terms of education. So <clears throat> quite often, behaviour place, um, sorry, uh, school-based placements might break down because of problem behaviour. They um, kind of reach a bit of a plateau in their learning, perhaps, and they've really not made any progress for a while. And again, will shift um, provision or, or or placement. And so you know, you end up building this history. And if you start seeing, you know, as a behaviour analyst, that somebody who can do something with prompting as you say you're just like well yeah okay but then what a is generally a skill that's no use to them right yeah so you go back to this whole idea of you know writing your name for the sake of writing your name or or things of that ilk um and that what tends to happen automatically is you strip it all back down to can they ask for what they want are they able to kind of remain motivated based on the things that they're interested in and what can we do with that and you know it It segues, I think, I mean, just from this small little concept or or methodology of prompting, I think you you, you exponentially go into all sorts of different fields because it then starts to feel like an ethical issue for me. It's, you know, why are we persistently using or why does why do we see people using reinforcement to maintain mundane skills in learners that could be doing so much more?
1: Yeah and And it's you know that's that's what gets into like um Pat McGreevy stuff essential for living on you know yeah. the um good to know nice to know must have should have kind of thing and that's a judgment call those are those judgment calls fortunately, he has really good judgment but um so yeah, I think that those are um i think there's big big issues to that like you know um, oh um can we still cover the um regarding prompt dependence um yeah, sure cover the um differential reinforcement yeah go for it yeah so let me explain this to to the listeners this is one of the if i had to have like a big three reasons for prompt dependence this is up in the big three and that is zero differential reinforcement and what i mean by that is you ask um you put a task in front of me and and um i'm i'm supposed to do it uh or you know you say you know touch the green one meryl and i and i i don't you prompt me to do it and then i i get my reinforcement or you prompt me for my homework and i get my reinforcement and no matter what i get my reinforcement and so here's one issue as far as we talked earlier about what's in it for me okay Mm -hmm. so let's say that you have a learner that they're not really interested in being independent in this, but it's something that everyone's determined is in their best interest. And there's a lot of skills that fall uh, kind of in that category. Then what you want to do is you got to give them a reason to be independent. And that reason is you get so much more reinforcement when a prompt is not used. So Mm -hmm. the idea is that if I say touch green, and you don't, and I move your arm toward the right one, you get like a skittle. Okay. If I say touch green and you move it yourself, I put down the one pound bag of skittles. Okay. <laughs> this, this is what I use as the analogy. Okay. So if you, because the thing is, here's what I want everyone to think about. If the person is actually, you know, struggling with what you're teaching them, and usually they are, right? You know, we got to give them the motivation to do it right to try harder, because if I'm not going to prompt you, that means you have to try. You have Mm -hmm. to effort. You have to focus. You have to think about it. You have to figure stuff out. Right. You have to. Here's what it comes down to. You have to struggle a little bit and you might even get frustrated. But this is here's the idea. When you did struggle and you did it without a prompt, since you're not really interested maybe in being independent we're going to try to make you interested in being independent encourage you i should say not make by giving giant reinforcement when you did it with no prompt and i think this is maybe how we end up building a sense of um in independence and um self-esteem and accomplishment in our own children is that we provide tremendous praise When they did it by themselves, if we had to help them, we we, almost all parents do this without even thinking about it. If we had to help them, let me help you get your pants on. Okay, you're ready. What? You got your pants on by yourself? Wow. What a big boy. (laughs) We all tend to do this without even thinking about it. It's absolutely differential reinforcement. And possibly what it's doing unwittingly to us is it's building a child. Who's excited about doing stuff on their own because we're we're creating a history with when you did it on your own and I didn't expect you to do it on your own. You get so much reinforcement. Does that make sense to you? So it it
0: does, and it it kind of it really kind of strengthens the point that for me in my own mind about what I was what what I said earlier around what lens are you looking at when you're working with the the the, the your kind of cohort age group clients however this kind of translates across to services is what are you thinking about when you're reinforcing that for that child how they get to their reinforcement and i i don't know if you ever remember saying it but going back to pat mcgreevy like one of the things i talk to people about is how quickly can somebody get to their reinforcer
1: Mm -hmm. that's an issue
0: um and i think you know we, we make all these accommodations for um children typically developing children and and yet and and repetitions everything else and and i think the challenge comes where typically developing children learn typically usually right and so you get this big en masse very kind of average um teaching approach that everybody does and it seems to work for most people And we have lots of people as we know and all those that work in in the SEN sector you get kids and adults that fall out of those you know catch all nets Mm-hmm. And, and I think it, it it tends to be around you know you get these very generic um, targets set and I, and I don't really mean even the curriculum I just mean broadly I mean when I go and work and kind of a, according to cases around this learning will no, will no longer engage and will no longer uh, participate mm-hmm. and isn't learning anymore mm-hmm. almost all of the time it's because they don't know how to get to the reinforcer or it's assumed that they don't need one anymore.
1: Yeah, we I mean we we call it like they they become um uh uh Neil Fleissig used the phrase task traumatized which I I I don't I don't like to use it cuz it belittles what trauma is but um I mean sure. it was just kind of like uh, uh an aside but what what we mean by that when we say it is, it's not it's not trauma in the sense of, you know, most people speak it, but they a task aversion is created for a lot of um, or teaching aversion, um, because they have just a long history of um not doing things successfully. It's always a struggle, a lot of errors. But again, um, and as you said, maybe they don't get to the reinforcement um quickly enough, which is, you know, backward chaining as a procedure can help with that kind of a thing. Uh, certainly, but but I think that the I think that the problem is bigger than that in in terms of it's I think what happened to a lot of like by the time I get to them when I get called in for a consult the kid wants zero to do with teaching like if it That's if, right. if it the, my phrase is like if it looks smells or acts like learning I don't want anything to do with it and <laughs> I I think I did in PCM training and I talked about one kid that he's fine. His demeanor is beautiful until you take him by the hand and bring him to a table. And even if there's no task on the table, a clean table, he starts to have a meltdown. And it's because this is the table where we do your teaching. This is where and, bad stuff happens. Yeah, totally. and, and, the yeah, thing this, is, and the thing is, if you have a kid who's at that place of this is where the bad stuff happens, you got a bigger problem than prompt dependence.
0: Yeah, so, well, absolutely. And, and then you... And then let's go, going back to this ethical piece. And maybe I don't really mean ethical with a capital E, but certainly with like, um, maybe the word I need is perspective for this point. It's when you're working with a really, really small child, let's just say school entry level child. Mm -hmm. Why is it that people aren't teaching escape mans? Why is it that people aren't teaching um, proper, you know, proper Mandarin? And, And the answer to that question is, maybe you don't see the need for it at that moment because they will be moved around a bit easier or they can kind of basically follow the herd of kids. But actually, all the things that you're discussing, you know, teaching kids the things they need to have that will get them access to more naturally occurring reinforcers. The Cooper's point around naturally occurring SDs, I mean, they're only SDs because they're signal reinforcers available, right? So you have that. And then you have, you need to recognise when you're prompting. Because if you don't recognize when you're prompting you will forever more prompt because as adults as you said right they're doing things we want them to do so we get reinforced so we do it more Mm -hmm. and then you end up in a a, a teenagers that can't make choices and can't
1: escape things they don't like and by the way people are there's also what i call um it, it is it's 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 prompt dependence in escapes clothing and what i mean by that is um sweetie Could you show me again? I don't remember exactly how the dishes are supposed to be loaded. Yeah, I'll show you, sweetie. Oh, good. (laughs) Uh, So it's one of those where where it looks like I'm not learning and I'm kind of not. But here's the reason why I'm completely and thoroughly capable of learning. But I have I have I I have purposefully not bothered to make a mental note of what you taught me because I know you'll help me again. And we right. all do this.
0: Mm. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes it's an overt strategy and sometimes it's just a product of reinforcement, right? Like you can, you just be so careful of it all.
1: Well, that too, that too. Um, right. Cause sometimes it's differential punishment. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, this is true too, but the same thing happens with, you know, children with special needs I and mean, no different.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Well, I think, you know just i think the main message that i'd like to take away from today and i think just listening to, to you kind of talk about this Mary, is i think the the key message i'm taking from what you're saying is that we need to be just calling or tacting accurately when we're describing skills that people can do or can't do
1: mm-hmm. yes that's one mm-hmm.
0: recognizing when it's really likely that prompt dependency is going to start happening maybe it's because the skills don't contribute to cuff level behaviors and so on Mm -hmm. and then also just recognizing how to be you know this let's not let's not lose sight of social significance here yeah um and just to draw your attention to a service that i know beyond autism currently runs is the post-19 service so the learners that are i guess college age in in america I, I think that's how it works i'm not sure the vernacular here but in any case 19 years old
1: mm-hmm.
0: and they really focus on building their ideal week mm-hmm. so immediately they're working on choice and a bit more autonomy oh. and stuff like did you that say that building they... their
1: ID... did you say building their ideal week
0: yeah exactly week
1: that's interesting so like scheduling out the whole we're going to teach you how to get through a week
0: it's exactly so um i like that And it's been really, really successful. Interestingly, one of the barriers has been much more um, ecological, in so much as the surrounding uh, regulators, for want of a better phrase, the inspectorate or so on, and particularly
1: at local government level. I'm sorry, uh, but before I forget, one other thing I wanted to mention that this is due to technology, but this is another this is another aspect of prompt dependence. Some people are independent – can be independent with prompting just like we are. So we had – there There were people that were taught how to keep their phone. Someone would program it, and they would respond to their phone, and they could independently go to appointments. They could independently take their medication. And when we say independently, again, independent from another human, not independent from a device, but we ourselves – I was in a meeting with a mom one time, and I took her cell phone away from her for ten minutes to make a, and she almost had a nervous breakdown, so uh, because she couldn't get prompted by the various things that her phone prompted her with. So, but my point is, is that you, uh, an individual with special needs could be heavily dependent on their phone, but just like we are, but and without their, but without our phone, we could still maybe find our, we could still find our way around. The person with special needs may not be able to. So their phone is even more important to them than us, right, is one way of looking at it. But with their phone, they can be, in a social sense, independent. They are not technology independent. They are technology prompt dependent. But, again, so are we. So what's the diff, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And, again, it goes back to that lens idea. And then just to kind of finish the point around um what counts as education, I guess. And we, we, in a way, it's kind of what we were talking about when uh, certainly I had a smaller child in mind around let's make sure that what we're getting them to do benefits them to a certain extent or they're interested in it. Because right. then, of course, you've got less need for prompting. Right. In theory. Going back to this post-19 scenario, it, it's it, from what I know about it, it's very much, well, they've had real trouble convincing local local government, you know, policymakers and the guys that provide funding what right. they're doing is education because they try to lump it into a different funding stream which affects whether or not they can be funded right so but it's it's vital particularly in, in my opinion and and certainly in kind of for the outcomes of those learners is that they they leave that service with the ability to make choice yes and everybody knows how they need to be supported whether it's with technology whether it's with you know a visual schedule whether it's with an adult you know who's there to support them
1: Mm-hmm. I would agree. And the other part was the uh, we touched on the differential reinforcement. Give them a reason. Yeah. Independent. And and we and we mentioned even if they're not excited about being independent, it doesn't mean they can't become excited about being independent. We can build that just like we build it in our own children. You yeah, know, don't have special needs.
0: There's so many ways to do that. It, I, I guess what frustrates me more is that you just think. I really wish that you could almost guarantee that people were thinking about that at entry point point. and yeah. forget, forget, forget ABA services. Like, let's not worry about that.
1: Yeah. Now. What I mean is just generally like going into a school. Yeah. Just sit back and uh, I, that's, I'm sorry. That's what my wife and I were talking about. Getting under the kid's skin is, is job one. I think that is, what is this kid all about? Yeah. What is this kid all about? And if, if you, what is it like being this kid? Right. You know, and, and sometimes you can do that a little bit. You know, you look at them, you look what makes them happy, what makes them sad. What is this kid all about? And if you know that going forward is so much easier, you know, there's a lot you can do with procedures. There's a lot you can do with powerful procedures. You can move behavior around in big ways. That was behavior modification, big fat reinforcers and big fat punishers. And you can move behavior around. With powerful procedures, but powerful procedures are they're unsophisticated. They're like sledgehammers. They don't target things. They're not smart. They're clumsy. Uh, Absolutely. They're a blunt instrument when you when you think if people, you know, you can shy
0: away from building choice as a skill or you can because it's hard to do and it's hard to you know, embark on a journey of uh, progressively shaping towards independence and choice making and autonomy. But Mm -hmm. without it, you are left with like a a prompt dependent person. I mean, forget autism for a
1: second. That's just
0: anybody who is prompt dependent. Um, You know, the elderly in some respects get disempowered.
1: um, Some individuals, when you watch them doing their activities and it never changes, it looks like it looks like the staff member or the teacher is operating the person via Bluetooth. Yeah. So it's like like they're using the person's arms as their own. Okay, now put that one there. Now put yeah. this one here. Now that one goes there. Well, you're using the person as a robot. That's not teaching. Right. That's all remote control.
0: Yeah, which, uh, which you know, prompting is a is a is a is a metaphorical remote control. Is a whole other. Well, it's meant to be that,
1: but I've seen it where it has devolved into nothing more than remote control. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which you know, people are led. Yeah, I know, I totally get what you mean. I sort of have it in my mind's eye. Uh, Well, look, Meryl, it's been fascinating talking about this. Uh, Uh, I feel like we've covered some some really cool ground here, and and you know, from a behavioral (laughs) analytical point of view, I just would it you know make sure that those of you that are kind of going to be supervising or going to be kind of continuing along, maintaining your credentials and so forth, that you make sure that when you're working with your supervisors, you see you are talking and thinking about how you can um, build autonomy from a really young age by recognizing that prompting is a thing uh, and then how to use it to to the to the learner's advantage. I mean, what else would you add to
1: that, Meryl? I would just say being, um, uh, putting an emphasis if they want their child to be independent then they have to show it in the how excited they get when the mm. child does something independent it has to be like you know the first time some, the child does something independent i mean most parents do this anyway but what if it's not the parents what if it's a teacher well if the child does it independently whether it is toileting making the bed or touching chicken <laughs> show me the chicken uh, when it's independent it has to be like a party so yeah know to uh, and I think so yeah I think I would add that to it that because we want someone it it, it does the ch- it, it's in the child's best interest to be excited about doing things by themselves
0: absolutely you know, to build and at any every level and yeah. and just just and by the way just for balance 27 degrees is 80 point six
1: <laughs> okay so it's quite it's quite warm there i I don't even know if it's 80 here right now what is what is uh, okay. it it's actually, it is eighty-one degrees. It is the same temperature. We have matched temperature. Oh well, there you go. It's, symbi- it's symbiotic then. Uh, yes, yes, it is. It, it's a uh, equilibration of temperature. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for that. I uh, I'm right. gonna turn Thanks the camera back on now. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I, I hope everybody enjoys it.